Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, and welcome to The Neutral Ground. Uh, Today I'll be sitting down with Matt Sledge, a crime reporter here at The Advocate, to talk about a busy week on the police beat. We lost one police chief and we got a new one. Uh, Then we'll be talking with uh, Councilman Joe Geruso, who oversees the City Council's Public Works Committee, about some big changes coming at the Sewerage and Water Board, including bigger bills, probably. And last, I'll sit down with music writer Keith Spira, who's going to tell us all about Chapa Style and the song that has captured the attention of all Saints fans. Uh, Matt's here first. Uh, Matt, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me, Gordon. My pleasure. So, uh, Matt, busy week in police news. Uh, we had first the sort of surprising news that Chief Michael Harrison was leaving for Baltimore. And then uh, really quickly, we've already got a new police chief. But let's, uh, Sean Ferguson, I should say, let's start with the uh, what happened with Chief Harrison. He was a pretty popular chief. He'd been here four years. And then um, there was news a month ago or so that he was being wooed by Baltimore, and he wasn't going to take it at the time, and then he suddenly did. What what happened here? Well, Baltimore has incredible challenges for its police department. It actually looks a lot like New Orleans did seven years ago. Uh, very high homicide rate and corruption scandals and brutality scandals. Um, so we, we got word a month ago that uh, Baltimore, while it was searching for its new chief, Uh, a selection committee had put Harrison at the top of all of the candidates for the job. Harrison at the time said, I'm not interested. I'm very happy in New Orleans. Uh, Baltimore's mayor picked someone else as her next police chief. And then he backed out. His son had medical problems. And uh, there were some signs that the Baltimore City Council wasn't too keen on him. So then the Baltimore mayor offered the job to Harrison and he accepted. He said that it was different actually being uh, offered the job rather than just being kind of vaguely courted for the job. So we had this announcement last Tuesday uh, that Harrison is headed to Baltimore. His last day is this Friday, um, so before the Saints play the Rams. Ferguson uh, was offered the job on Tuesday or Wednesday of, of last week, he said at a press conference uh, today. So that means that Cantrell made her decision very quickly, almost the same day that Harrison announced he was leaving or the day after. So it sure seems like the mayor had kind of already had her eyes on him. And so do we think this goes back further? I mean, we obviously, with the with Harrison's departure, there's talk of how you know, the mayor, when she was running for office, she talked about getting, a, you know, having a nationwide search for a new chief. Then she kind of backed off of that and said, he's going to be my chief for the time being, but I'm going to figure out how to evaluate him. But she didn't give him a real full vote of confidence. And then there's a little bit of a dispute maybe about whether she ever did give him a full vote of confidence. Um, number one, do you think she did do that? And number two, do you think she had her eye on Ferguson all along? Well, it's hard to say what went on behind closed doors. We do know about these public statements that she made uh, before she actually became mayor, then right after she became mayor. And it sure seemed like there was some 
Henning and Hine going on. Over the last week since Harrison announced that he's moving to Baltimore, both parties, both Harrison and Cantrell, have been at pains to talk about how much they like each other, how much they had each other's respect, and, you know, they have just been overflowing with praise for each other. So I think they've, uh, you know, decided to be uh, very public in trying to bat down those rumors, Mm -hmm. which are very persistent, that Harrison felt like he did not have Cantrell's full support. And I guess at this point, it it probably is good for both of them for the official story to be that, that they had a great relationship because it doesn't help either one of them to, to suggest that they were on the rocks. Right. Not not to get too cynical about it, but Michael Harrison still has to be approved by Baltimore City Council, unlike in New Orleans, where Cantrell can simply appoint her police chief. And Cantrell, of course, wants to make it look uh, like everything is hunky-dory. And this was a popular police chief who a lot of people thought was doing a pretty good job, and she doesn't want anyone to think she ran the guy off. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, when when we asked around and and called folks, uh, you know, both politicians and and people in the community, there was near-universal praise for Harrison's tenure. So I don't think it does her any favors uh, to speak ill of him or, or to make it look like they had a uh, unpleasant party. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the new guy. Um, what do we know about... Well, actually, let's start by... Let's play a little bit of uh, sound from his uh, press conference today. Chief Harris, thank you for your leadership, for your mentorship. It has been an amazing experience working with you over the years. In fact, throughout my entire career, i worked and leaned on Chief Harris personally and professionally. I just want to thank you. Thank you for the foundation that you've instilled within the New Orleans Police Department. It is a solid foundation in which we are willing to build upon. Thank you so much. We wish you the best in Baltimore. Thank you for your service to the city. That was uh, the new chief, Sean Ferguson, or he'll be chief as of Friday, as Matt said, uh, talking a little bit about his relationship with the outgoing chief, Michael Harrison. He sort of portrays it like uh, Harrison was a key mentor of his. Is that is, is he like a protege of Michael Harrison, would you say? Or um, Well, yeah, they, they definitely uh, presented it that way at the, uh, the press conference today. Ferguson did say that he was the first person selected by Harrison uh, to go through this uh, leadership, uh, police leadership, uh, course up in Boston. Um, so that's a vote of confidence there. And Harrison uh, also decided to move Ferguson from the 4th District, which covers Algiers, uh, to the 2nd second, second District, which covers Uptown and, and Broadmoor, and is a little bit more high profile. And then Harrison moved him over to the NOPD Training Academy, which uh, has historically been kind of a backwater at NOPD, uh, but is now this fairly high profile assignment because you have so many interactions with NOPD uh, consent decree monitors. So that training academy position in particular uh, does show uh, some confidence in Harrison uh, toward Ferguson. 
And as you mentioned, the, his assignment in the second district also, uh, that's the uptown district where Latoya Cantrell was the councilwoman for several years. They overlapped for a good bit of that time, I think. And so they developed, I gather, a, a pretty close working relationship over yeah, this. Yeah, it, it seems like from her comments at the press conference that they had built up uh, kind of a rapport and trust there. And if I had to guess, that's probably why she was able to select Ferguson so quickly to become the next NOPD superintendent. Okay. Well, is there anything else looking ahead that we should know about uh, uh, Sean Ferguson? Not really a household name yet in New Orleans, but he will be very shortly, of course. Yeah, sure. I I think over the coming week, me and my colleagues are going to be trying to uh, build out uh, the biography of Sean Ferguson, tell our readers a little bit more about him, and also talk about some of the challenges he faces even though in 2018 we had the lowest number of homicides since 1971, uh, New Orleans is obviously still a very violent city. It has a high violent crime rate. It's much higher uh, you know, in, in other categories other than homicide uh, than it was just eight or nine years ago. And there's still this tricky little issue of the consent decree. Um, judging from letters, a letter that she sent to the consent decree monitors, Last month, Mayor Cantrell is itching to get out of the consent decree, but the monitors don't think that the city is quite as far as long as the city thinks it is. Right. All right. Well, um, lots to write about, lots to learn about. Um, thanks for uh, thanks for coming by and explaining that, Matt. Thanks so much. All right. All right. Well, I'm here now with uh, Councilman Joe Jerusso of District A. Uh, Councilman Jerusso, thanks for being with me. Thank you for having us. So uh, you're, among other things, you're the chairman of the Public Works Committee, which kind of gives you oversight over the uh, Sewerage and Water Board, which has been in the news a little bit lately. Um, Just for... a few articles here and there the last few days. <laughs> Good reasons and bad. Well, maybe all bad reasons. But I, So we had, of course, the news came out that the uh, part of the reason for the recent boil water advisory was that a couple of employees had crucial employees had been asleep and unable to be aroused, I guess, um, which we learned about last week. There had been hints of this. They had said that these people had bailed or whatever. But well, tell me how you reacted upon hearing that news, Councilman. Well, it's not the news the agency needs right now. What you're trying to do is restore trust into a beleaguered agency and one that's been embattled. And as we were talking offline, you're sort of now dealing with things that happened in the past. We have a new executive director who's trying, I think, his best to turn around a ship. Mm-hmm. And it's one that's going to take a long time to turn. And what you don't need is self-inflicted wounds. And this is one of those. Right. Uh, and the other piece to be fair, that I've been critical about uh, with them uh, publicly and privately is when you're doing this, you got to be um, transparent and accountable on the front end. And if I had been advising them, my advice to them would have been go to the media with a full package, Mm -hmm. tell them this is the conditions under which it happened. Here is our investigative report of what happened. This is the outcome that we have. This is how we plan on dealing with it going forward because sort of what you've alluded to is you had news stories four or five days consecutively and rather than it running in one news cycle, it's running half a dozen. Right. Now, I will say, you know, 
from our perspective, at least compared to some scandals we've covered in the past, this didn't seem like something that we're trying to run from. But you're right, it wasn't all it also wasn't something where they, they quite pushed out. I mean, but from the very beginning they sort of acknowledged that something hadn't quite gone right here. Well and here's here's the part that's tough from a public perspective. There were civil service issues at the very beginning and at least one employee had been suspended but hadn't yet resigned. Right. So I perfectly understand, although may not love the idea that you couldn't come clean on everything, but once you've reached that point where both the people have resigned, I think it's better form to have have come forward and as I've said earlier, if you really want to be a little Machiavellian about it, yeah. you could have broke the story right around the holiday time and and you're laughing because i think you recognize that had that happened people would have been distracted between the holidays and the new year um but you could have also gotten the full story out there councilman you may have a future in pr politics. (laughs) i don't know about that um so of course this news happened to break around the same time that uh gasson corbin the new executive director is going around meeting with newspapers and such and talking about how he's going to need a lot more money to to right the ship um he's been sort of saying that since he got here but he's getting a little more specific about things they're looking at he's talking about rate hikes possibly by the end of this year and other things in the future maybe a a drainage fee a parcel fee for drainage and possibly even a a new property tax or, or an increased property tax i should say um and I guess it's unfortunate that those two things are happening at the same time, this news, and, and actually a second story about another employee being asleep on the job. But, but I mean, obviously that's the big issue is, is the condition of everything they operate. And, and what do you think? Do you think it's realistic to be asking for money yet? Or do you think people need to be convinced that it's really that bad? Or do you think that people need to be convinced that these guys can be trusted with the money? What, what do you think has to happen first? The, the, so the answer is yes. Um, and by that, I mean, I think we're at a point where you're going to need a drainage fee at some point. It's not a question of, of if, but when. The problem is the public isn't there yet. And they need to be convinced of a few different things. I think they need to see core competencies. They need to see some definite concrete wins. For example, the billing system being turned around and seeing there's never going to be 100% bills being absolutely right, but, but better compliance with that. You need to see better collections from sewage and water boards. So the millions of dollars that are allegedly owed now winnowed down as much as reasonably possible. Um, and I and I think you need to I think you need to see a plan too. Right. What 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 does uh, the the drainage fee look like? How does it affect us? And and I would say this without having had the discussion in fairness with either Gasson or the mayor, a fee would be more equitable than a millage in the sense that the fee is applied to everybody, profit nonprofit across right. the board, as opposed to millage that's just. Uh, levied against property owners based on your value yeah correct yeah interesting so so in these uh, conversations with the media and others last week he Gasson is talking about developing a comprehensive plan over the next couple of years but he's he's uh i guess he's talking about simultaneously maybe seeking a rate increase do you think that that's too soon do you think we need to see the whole plan first i think we need to see the whole plan first and, and let me just tell you a, a quick story about what happened this is the beginning of the month for us which ordinarily means neighborhood meetings saturday i had three and i think a fairly good cross-section of district a 
Lakeview, then Desai, which is near the fairgrounds, and Hollygrove. Lakeview, unsurprisingly, was against uh, a drainage fee or rate increase. Now, mind you, the rates have gone up almost 100% over the last eight years. Um, Desai was opposed to it uniformly as well with, again, questions mainly about what are we getting in return for our money. The most surprising was when I went to Hollygrove. Now, mind you, because of the fact that we campaigned for as long as we did, we had the long transition for six or seven months, and now we have the seven months. You've effectively been working at the job for maybe a year and a half, even if we've only been in office for seven months. And the neighbors there affirmatively laughed at me. I, I have oh. uh, right, right. I, I have discussed many policy positions where I maybe have gotten an askance look or or a shake of the head, but to hear a chuckle from that many people in the room said something to yeah. me. So I think it's a combination, really, of both things. It's it's got to be both the restoring of the public confidence, which I think Gasson and his team. Are, are set on doing as as you mentioned earlier but then you also need to lay out what your plan is right. now you mentioned the, the sort of steady rate increases we've had over the years and and i think you know i'm like everybody else my bills have probably have doubled or maybe a little more in the last 10 years or so but there was a phenomenon in new orleans too where for many years like when i was a younger reporter covering the city i think the city council first passed some rate increases in like just after the year 2000, there had been a long period of time with no rate increases. And I guess a question, and this doesn't make anything any easier, but are we paying kind of for the sins of the past, like the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when maybe we weren't paying what we should have been and not doing the maintenance that we should have been doing? And now, as Gassan says, he says, you know, five miles of water mains have been repaired in the last 25 years, which is out of 1,500 miles. He says he's never seen anything like it. Of course. And the problem is you're going to need more money because the maintenance has taken such a long time to do. With streets, at least I've seen a report that says for every dollar you spend in maintenance, you save $4 in repair. So the fact that we have so much deferred maintenance means the repair costs are going to be that much higher. It doesn't make it more palatable to people to say that. It just doesn't. But on the other hand, if you can start showing this is... $10 $10 million. This is what we've done with the $10 million. And this is the win that we're getting. That makes it a lot easier. The hard part is, and again, I'm really not trying to be overly critical of the agency, but when you have a pipe burst um, a block away from your plant and you yeah. don't know about it, and the neighbors have to report it to you, that doesn't do a lot to instill confidence. Right. And I think what I tell people is there are a lot of good people working in Sewage and Water Board. Gassan, I think, is trying his level best. But you not only have neglected infrastructure, you also have a culture that has to be changed as well. Yeah. I mean, it's been – it's that's one of the big questions, I guess, is how much of this is mismanagement over the years and how much of it is lack of funding. Well, and and how do you change a mindset yeah. is, is another piece of it. And it's hard because I think a lot of us and, and in my other day job as a lawyer, you sometimes see people take a cookie-cutter approach to something, and it becomes easy because that's the root thing you know how to do. Um, I think some of this is starting to get people more comfortable with, with doing business differently yeah. as well, and also doing it more publicly. Yeah. Last question I wanted to ask you was, I mean, as much as – we may need these rate hikes and so forth um, and parcel fees and whatnot. There is this feeling of 
you know, there's a lot of talk in the city right now about the cost of housing, the cost of everything else, poor people being squeezed out. Um, how do you do these things without just increasing those pressures, or is there a way to do that? Well, I don't know there is a way to do it, frankly, other than looking at a couple of different things. One is all these modalities are so closely related to one another, and so we have to do a better job of improving our transportation and get people to and from work at a faster time, which saves costs. Uh, I would hope that with what we're working on with short-term rentals and perhaps increasing um, the NIF that we're creating, housing that we haven't otherwise had, and then I think what we also have to do, particularly when it comes to our infrastructure, is looking at all the available sources that, that we can use to bear here. So um, the conversation has to be around if we're going to pursue tourism dollars or other dedicated revenue, how do we use that as a way to offset some of this cost? Uh, if we're going to look at... Um, uh, property taxes and homestead exemption fraud. How do we look at that as another way? The mayor's office also, and something I've been supportive of, wants to ramp up sales tax collection. That doesn't cost the citizens anything. Mm -hmm. And so while you're not going to be able to solve all of the problems by doing it um, the way of, of just purely looking at the revenue side, it certainly takes some of this thing away. And then I guess coming back full circle, um, I think a fee generally will tend to keep things lower for an individual homeowner than a millage would. And, and, and I think Sewage and Water Board has some education doing that front too yeah. about, about what the costs look like in, in other parishes and relative what we're getting in return. All right. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll be waiting with bated breath to see what the plan is. Um, thanks for joining me today, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. I'm so happy to be talking about the best quarterback in the league. Oh yeah, MVP. Every quarterback wanna be like Breeze. Touchdown, look at that scoreboard. We on fire now. We ready to roll. One time for the who that nation, 'cause you know we bleed black and gold. Okay, well, uh, next up is Keith Spira, who uh, is our music critic here at The Advocate, and he's been covering the latest craze in uh, Saints fandom and music locally, uh, Choppa Style, which uh, seems like you can't go one block without hearing it blasting out of something. Um, Keith, thanks for being here, first of all, and, and uh, secondly, give us an idea of how this craze started and why did this song suddenly catch fire? You know, it's hard to say exactly why this particular song at this particular time became a thing. You know, the song is 16 years old, but in a sense, it's sort of, uh, it's old school now at this point. And there's always nostalgia for old school hip hop, just like there's nostalgia for classic rock. And this song has circled back around from its original incarnation. You know, it made a little bit of noise. When it was first released in 2002 via the independent rap label Take Four Records, mm -hmm. it made some noise, uh, came to the attention of Master P, who at the time had a distribution deal with major label Universal. So 
a few months after Chapa released the song via his debut album on Take 4 Records, No Limit released a Chapa album with a new version of Chapa style on it featuring Master P. And that's kind of the version of the song that uh, really is, has legs and has, has become this thing, you know. But that's the standard. I mean, that's the standard you know, version. In other words, that's yeah. the that's okay. Yeah, that's the one. And you know, at the time, it did all right nationally. I mean, it you know made it into like I think forty nine on the national charts, but it wasn't a huge hit. Right. <clears throat> but you know, now it's circled back, and it's gosh, it's uh, omnipresent. As omnipresent as the Florida Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and it was kind of rediscovered by some of the Saints players was what got it its start, right? I mean, it's yeah, second they, start. Yeah, you know, they queued it up in the locker room for the post-game celebrations and, uh, you know, it works in that, in that, for that, uh, for that use, you know, it's a fun song. It's in, uh, it's, it makes you want to move. It's distinctive. It's got a very distinct, uh, beat and refrain. So it's easy when you've got a bunch of kind of hyped up, adrenalized football players that want to celebrate a victory and blow off some steam in the locker room. Yeah, it's exactly right for that sort of thing. You know, you don't want a ballad at that point. You right. want something <laughs> that's got you know something, some beat to it. Some it will make you move. Yeah. Well, it's it reminds me a lot, and I'm sure I'm not the only one of how Crunk became an anthem in 2009, and it wasn't exact. That wasn't a brand new song at the time. It may have been a little more current than this song is now but it it sort of seemed to capture a mood and it almost seemed like a good luck kind of talisman or something yeah and the advantage of chapa style over crunk is that chapa style is actually by a new orleans rapper as opposed to an atlanta rap act so the uh, the pedigree is much more purely black and gold this time around for right. sure but yeah it's a very similar phenomena and again you know it's hard to explain you know, Crunk was getting played in the Dome a little bit, you know, the, the PA system, which helped it quite a bit, you yeah. know, and the Dome DJ would cue it up at just the right time. But Chapa style really is kind of broken out of the locker room more than anything yeah. else. Yeah, it's a good point. So you kind of traced some of this in a recent article about the song, but let's talk a little bit about what it what it means and also kind of the dance, which I think has become associated with the song uh, I mean, there's a couple of dances associated with it, but the the dance that some of the players are doing isn't really is not something that they were doing in 2003. That's kind of a modern adaptation, right? Correct. You know, the original Chapa style dance, as much as it was, was kind of this like holding your balled up fists in front of you, you know, almost in like kind of a boxing pose and kind of doing this up and down motion with it a little bit. Um, which you saw Alvin Kamara doing on the sidelines mm-hmm. during the first Eagles game this season, the one back in November, uh, when it was clear the Saints had broken them and Chapa Style came on over the PA system and, and Camaro was doing that dance. Um, but yeah, Teddy Bridgewater, the backup quarterback, and some other folks have kind of put this, mo- this dirt bike variation on the dance where they're kind of revving these imaginary handlebars and, and, and kind of skip-hopping across the locker room. Mm-hmm. And that's more of like a Miami thing. There's like a whole dirt bike culture there of riding dirt bikes through the streets and doing wheelies and all this sort of stuff. And Bridgewater's from the Miami area. So that's kind of where that's coming from. Uh, and some of the other teams around the NFL, chief among them, the Chiefs, have kind of uh, borrowed, shall we say, that particular <laughs> move, much to Mark Ingram's displeasure, as right. he uh, uh, voiced on Twitter. So, yeah, it's become a big enough thing for other teams to steal and for Ingram and some others wanting to 
defend and claim it as property of the New Orleans Saints. Right. As they did uh, last night with the in the ski mask interview, I think. Right. Um, <laughs> the ski mask interview, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting in a way how these things evolve, though. And the dance that many people associate with this song has nothing to do with the song in 2003. But I guess it's you know spit riffing off of the what the word chopper means. And and you in your article you talked a little bit about how chopper can also be like a like an AK-47 or a, or a street weapon, although that was also not the kind of Choppa that Choppa was referring to in the song, right? It's just Correct. sort of an, no, it's this just one, a nickname, right? Yeah, this one has nothing to do with guns. I mean, I had this great, and before I really researched, I'm like, oh, wow, if he's if that's what he was talking about, I can do this whole like line about, you know, pl- uh, beating uh, swords into plowshares, you know, the song that was yeah. about violence <laughs> is now about the saints, but fortunately that wasn't the case. Um, no, I mean, in Chapa's version, uh, you know, the song is like so many bounce songs, mostly about sex and about yeah. like, you know, uh, the, uh, the type of lady he would like to find for that particular endeavor. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's done, you know, if you take the, if you read the words on the page, literally, uh, yeah, it comes off as, as very provocative and, and, and frankly sexual, you know, the way it's presented in the song with the beat, it's it's not that heavy, you know, it's not that, uh, it doesn't come across as menacing or anything like that in the right. song. I mean, it's kind of just a fun beat and, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost exaggerated to the point that it's, you know, it's not to be taken seriously necessarily. But it's, that said, I think, yeah, a lot of fans probably be surprised if they actually like read the lyrics to the verses <laughs> and what have you. <laughs> I see a lot of yeah. grandmothers yeah. out there. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so do you think this this song will be like Crunk and will sort of stay with us for the, I mean, you, Crunk, you still hear after every touchdown pretty much. Do you think this is going to be something like that or does it depend on how things go for the next few weeks or what would you, what's your prognostication there? Yeah, I mean, I think this one will kind of maybe enter the Saints Anthem Hall of Fame, kind mm-hmm. of like Crunk did, you know, and it won't be the go-to song maybe after the season, but it'll be certainly a song that gets pulled out in, specific situations and and special occasions maybe and uh and it'll still be popular but yeah i mean there's there's always a burnout factor where people don't want to hear the same song every single touchdown and every single you know post-game celebration so you know the fact that the saints were like busting out what strobe lights and disco balls and stuff after this one like it's kind of it's kind of you know they're they're getting close to jumping the shark with it like <laughs> yeah. you so know it i don't seems... know if they have like pyrotechnics and lasers the next time around or yeah. like how they up the ante in the locker room after this sunday's game assuming they win but uh you know they're they're getting pretty close to uh to the end uh with this one i think so uh you well, know this, this may get him to the super bowl and that that'll be that you know and on that note i wanted to ask you just a question about Chapa. i mean he's like a regular humble guy who lives on the west bank who i guess it sort of you know vanished into more or less obscurity after his initial 15 minutes of fame some years back and now he's having kind of a moment obviously and and he seems to be enjoying himself no how could he not i mean you know he's uh yeah the song's been resurrected and you know, it's nothing but good for him. Uh, yeah, because he's only released music. He's released music very sporadically since, you know, since Chapa Style's first go around in 2002, 2003. You know, his career has been very uneven, to say the least. So yeah. the fact that he's getting all this attention again, you know, I mean, he's in his late 30s. So that's a little late to, to for the rap game kind of thing. Um, you know, but Sean or um, Drew Brees is 40. So, I mean, you know, as yeah. of Tuesday. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> 
Apparently, there's no age limit on these things anymore. So and Drew celebrated his 40th with a little uh, concert from Chapa, huh? With a little Chapa style. So, yeah. uh, you know, let's hear it for the uh, the, the guys who are in their 20s. The old guys. <laughs> that's right. So, All right. Well, um, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk to me today, Keith. Appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. All right. Take care. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.